Those kids are so adorable. Okay, if you have a Bible with you, please open up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. We're working our way through Mark's Gospel. I'm not doing a, a full expository uh, teaching series on Mark like we did on John, but rather we have a focus, we have a, um, a purpose in our way working through Mark. And we're focusing on healings, signs, wonders, power encounters, and supernatural events in the life of Jesus. The objective is this, that we can learn from Jesus' example. Isn't that a big part of the reason why he came? That, that he is our, he's our model, he's the template. We get, we do, uh, we get to be like him because he lives in, in us. And so my thought is this, when it comes to learning how to heal the sick, for example, if we could look at the life of Jesus, I'm thinking that there are things that we could pick up, that we can learn to help us be more effective in doing the things he did. Matter of fact, he said we would do greater things. So it's to our value as a community of faith who believes that the gifts of the Spirit offer today, that we look at Jesus' example. And so that's what we're doing. This is the 13th in the series on healing. And, um, and so this morning we're going to take a look at a Jesus healing a demonized boy. And we'll look at it a few verses at a time. But let's begin with prayer. Lord, be with us this morning. I pray that even now, Lord, you prepare our hearts to hear your word, that our hearts would be good soil, that the, the, the seed of your word would be planted in our hearts, and that it would bear abundant fruit. And let the end result be this, that we would look more like Jesus, that we would act more like Jesus, that our hearts would be more like his heart. Make us more like you, Lord. And Lord, to that end, I pray you use me to speak your word to your people in a way that's life-giving. In Jesus' name, amen? amen? All right, so let's begin in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. This is what Scripture says. I'm using the New International Version. <clears throat> when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. So verse 14 begins with the words, when they came to the other disciples, who, who is the they in this? Who are the they that came to the other disciples? Well, it's referring to James uh, and Peter and John and Jesus. The, the four of them had been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're just coming back from the experience where Peter, James, and John got to see Jesus transfigured. So when it says, when they came to the other disciples, they're talking about Peter, James, John, and Jesus. And there they find the remaining nine disciples. Philip, uh, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of uh, Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot. They find these nine guys, their nine friends who, are, who did not go up to the Mount Transfiguration. And they're in an argument with the teachers of the law. And not only are the nine disciples in an argument with the teachers of the law, there's a large crowd around them watching as this plays out. Isn't that wonderful? And so the crowd sees Jesus coming, and what do they do? They run to Jesus. And Jesus asks them, hey, what's going on? So verse uh, 9, excuse me, Mark 9, verses 16 and 18 continue the narrative. Uh, Jesus says, what are you arguing with them about, he asked. 
A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. So apparently, the other nine disciples who stayed behind, well, Jesus took three of his friends up to the Mount of Transfiguration. They stayed behind, and they tried to cast a demon out of this boy, or at least some of the nine tried. And unfortunately, they were unsuccessful. This poor boy is severely demonized. <coughs> Excuse me. He's lost, because of this, he's lost his ability to speak. Uh, this, and he is, he's experiencing, he has demonic fits and convulsions that the scripture tells us seizes him, it throws him to the ground, he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. My heart goes out to this poor kid. This is awful. This is terrible that he would experience these, these things. Um, it goes, my heart goes out to not only him, but his family as well. And so the boy's dad brings the kid to the disciples for help. Now, word's gotten around. We, we've got, we're, we're nine chapters into the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has been doing this stuff for a while now. He's healing the sick and casting out demons and raising the dead. Um, word's gotten out. They, the community is aware that this is the kind of stuff that happens with Jesus. And these are the guys who always are hanging out with him. This is his inner circle. These are his core group of people. And so while Jesus isn't there, this desperate father, he wants help. And he thinks that there's help with Jesus' disciples. Who could blame him? Any parent here, if your child was in severe condition, you try to find some kind of help too. But the, the disciples, they weren't able to make it happen. They, they were just not able to cast the demon out of this poor boy. And so here's the dad, and he's filling Jesus in on all this commotion that's going on. And so we can see from the text that the teachers of the law have obviously weighed in. They've voiced their opinion concerning uh, all of this. And as a result, it's led to a public argument between the teachers of the law and the nine disciples. We see that the teachers of the law are treating Jesus' disciples in the very same way they treated Jesus. There's been... You can see it when we look through, we talk through John's Gospel, and we see it again in Mark's Gospel. There's conflict after conflict after conflict between the, uh, the prevailing religious order of the day and this upstart Jesus and all his troublemaker friends. Just, uh, they clash again and again and again. I've heard it said, and I know it's true, I've walked through it, I've seen it happen, that the last move of God always attacks the next move of God. The last move of God always attacks the new move of God. So the last move of God here is what God did with the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. That was the last move. Guess what? God has showed up. Jesus has showed up and he's doing a new thing. This is We're seeing the playing out of, of Isaiah 48, 19 where God says, Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Can you not perceive it? Matter of fact, the verse before says, forget the former things. Why would God tell us to forget the former things? Because we want to hold on to the former things. 
Right? We like the old things. But he says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. And guess what? The scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the chief priests, God was in their midst. He was doing a new thing. It was a brand new thing. God had never showed up in the flesh and dwelled among men since, since the Garden of Eden. So he's doing a new thing. And guess what? They are not perceiving him. Matter of fact, so much so are they not perceiving that it's God that they attack him. And they attack his disciples. They publicly are challenging the disciples in the same way they public, publicly challenge Jesus. Jesus tells us that this is going to happen in John 15, 20. He says, remember, this is Jesus saying, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey your teaching. And so the religious leaders uh, want to discredit Jesus, and they want to discredit Jesus' followers, and they're willing to exploit this poor boy's suffering uh, to make their point. And so when Jesus hears what's going on, the father of the poor boy, he's filled him in now. Um, once Jesus gets the report, he responds to what he's heard. And he responds with some very harsh words, harsher words than we usually hear from Jesus in the Gospels. In Mark chapter 9, verses 19, this is what Jesus says. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Whew. That's kind of cutting, right? That's kind of rough. But here's my question. Who's Jesus talking to? Who is he addressing in this text? Is he talking to the boy's father? Because he's the one who just kind of filled Jesus in on what's going on. Is he addressing his disciples who are unable to cast out the evil spirit? Is he addressing the teachers of the law? Or is he addressing everyone? So, um, as I was preparing, I, I read a variety of commentaries. I said, let's see what, what greater minds throughout history have had to say about this. What, how do they weigh in? You know, what was their opinion? I disagreed with most of them. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> Commentators disagree on this point, and so I'll give you my opinion, and then you can decide for yourself. Now, Matthew and Mark also have an account of this. Uh, uh, they, they also write about this uh, event, this uh, encounter. In Matthew 17, 17, and in Luke 9, 41, they add a, a, another bit to... Jesus' phrase. Jesus says to them, you unbelieving and perverse generation. The word perverse here means to distort, to turn upside down, to oppose, to plot against, to pervert or to corrupt. So with that word, I think that word's helpful, and with that word and, and its definition, and if we take into account the whole of, of the gospel, all of the four gospels, who does this sound like? Who, who would that definition apply to best? The Father, the disciples, the teachers of the law, or to the whole group? To me, it sounds very much like the teachers of the law. 
They're the ones who have plotted and planned and schemed and colluded and falsely accused Jesus to the point of plotting for him to be killed, right? Who are the perverse ones here? Is it the, is it the father who wants the son to be helped? Is it the, the disciples who are trying to respond to that need? Or is it the teachers of the law who are exploiting this poor boy so that they could win a public argument in the hope of discrediting Jesus and his followers? Well, I think it applies to the teachers of the law and is congruent with some of the other things that Jesus has said to them. So, but does it matter? And if it does matter, why? Well, I think it does matter. I think who he's speaking to here is really important. Because I see no other account in Scripture where Jesus would talk to his friends this way. Where he would say to his friends, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? The only ones that he has had this kind of conversation with has been the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the chief priests. Why is that important? Because I don't think Jesus would ever say to you, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? You know who would whisper those words in your ears? The mocker would do it. The deceiver would do it. The liar would do it. The enemy would do it. You know, sometimes we might even speak those words to ourselves. But we don't have a God who's angry with us. We don't have a God who's mad at us. We have a God who loves us lavishly and extravagantly. And this is not how a loving father, or even a loving brother, as it were, would speak to his family. So I think it's vitally important who's Jesus speaking to. And as I look at the whole of it and trying to read it within context of all of the gospel, Jesus is speaking to the religious people. He's not speaking to the ones who are seeking help or the ones who are trying to help. We're the objects of his divine affection. He's in love with us. He's just crazy about us. But it does absolutely fit into what he would say to the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. Read Matthew chapter 27. The seven woes. Oh my goodness. In that text, I mean, if we think this is harsh, Jesus says this of those religious people. He defines them as whitewashed tombs <laughs> filled with dead men's bones. There's consistency there. There's, it's congruent. This statement would match with those statements. But when he meets with his disciples, he calls them my friends. Right? So I think that's important. Take note of that. God will never say to you, I'm done with you. Right? He'd never say, you've gone too far. Matter of fact, the scripture says mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. So scripture tells us that love never fails. That love keeps no account of wrongs. That God's not counting men's sins against them. That's how he talks to his children. Now some of us have been mothered and fathered well. Some of us haven't. Those of us who've been mothered and fathered well, we've never heard these words from our parents. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Those of us who've not been parented well, we may have heard those words. We may have been thrown out of our house after hearing those words. And our God is so much better than our broken parents. So I think it matters who he was speaking to. 
So that's my take. You can decide for yourself. Study it. See, you know, see what you come up with. But I think he's speaking to the teachers of the law there. They're the ones who are perverse in this encounter. Who's Jesus addressing? He's addressing those who would exploit a poor boy's suffering for their own advantage, for their own religious political agenda. I think it's the teachers of the law who are the unbelieving and perverse ones in this crowd. As Blaise Pascal is well known for saying, I love this quote, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. And that would apply to the teachers of the law in this account. I tell you what, <laughs> I mean, that's such a true statement. I've, I've been treated more harshly by people who claim to be Christians and in the name of, and, and quoting Bible verses to me, have treated me worse than unbelievers ever have. I've, I've, I've dealt with demonized people who haven't been as bad as people who my brothers. I'm not kidding. At least a demonized person, I can rebuke them and then stop, you know. But something happens where people will do evil so completely and cheerfully when they do it from religious conviction. That's why people think it's justified to fly airplanes into buildings or to strap bombs to themselves. They do it from religious conviction, and it's just so wrong. I think it's the same spirit that was driving that day. Look at a poor boy here who's suffering. The disciples aren't affected, but they're trying, right? They haven't been able to stop the bleeding, but they're putting a bandage on. I mean, they're doing what they can. Anyway, moving on. So they bring the, verse 20. Uh, so they brought him, Scripture tells us. Wow. That's never happened before on a Sunday morning. All right. You can still hear me? You can still see me? I'm glowing. Isn't it wonderful? It's not the glory of God. It's the light of my iPad. Get open those windows. Wow. We've been here for four years. That has never, ever happened on a Sunday morning before. Isn't that funny? Okay, we'll just keep going, all right? That helps a little bit. Thanks, guys. So verse 20 of Mark 9 says, So they brought him. And when the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. And he fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. So Jesus asked for the boy, and they bring the boy to him. And, and when they do, a power encounter ensues. There is conflict between the life, the very manifest presence of God in Jesus, and the demon that has been tormenting this poor boy. There is a clash between light and darkness. So in the presence of Jesus, this evil spirit acts out. What does it do? It causes convulsions and flailing and falling to the ground, foaming at the mouth. Not often, but I've seen this. I've, I've ministered to people where I've, I've seen that kind of demonic manifestation to varying degrees. The, the powerful, holy presence of God exposes the demon, irritates the demon, agitates the demon. 
Light shines on the darkness. And demons scurry about trying to maintain their hold or their grip. And so what does Jesus do at this point? Well, at this point he interviews the dead. He sees what's going on. The, the scripture account is clear in saying that um, it was demonic. Uh, that the demon was causing the boy to do this. And so he interviews the dad. Verse 21, Jesus asks the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childbirth, from childhood, he answered. Apparently this has been an ongoing problem for quite some time. We don't know how old the boy is, but it's been a while. And um, so a few extra minutes on Jesus' part to interview the dad is really not going to do the boy much more harm. He's been dealing with this for a while. And the dad goes on to explain and then asks Jesus for help in verse 22. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. So not only has this poor boy suffered uh, under the affliction of this demon, this demon has tried to kill him in a variety of different ways. It makes my heart go out even more. It reminds me of John 10.10 where it says that the enemy comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Obviously, he's trying to steal life from this boy, trying to literally kill this boy, and trying to destroy his life. And it seems like it's been pretty effective to date. And so the father asks if. He asked Jesus the question, if. Dad took a risk. And he asked the disciples for help, and they were unsuccessful, which led to this whole commotion. I'm thinking maybe the dad's confidence is shaken. Right? Socially, it's probably embarrassing. It's probably not a comfortable thing. I would imagine the families try to contain, control, hide the boy. But here, the dad brings him out publicly, out of desperation, seeking some help, and it doesn't work. Oh. All the more humiliating. But then Jesus shows up. And everybody knows Jesus is the big wig. He's the guy. He's the one who got the juice. So he goes to Jesus. But I'm thinking his confidence is shaken. He's, there's this big commotion. All the, all the you know, bona fide religious leaders are seemingly opposed. Jesus' own disciples couldn't get the job done. But this is Jesus. I'll, I'll tactfully try to risk again. And... Um, he says to Jesus, if you can help, help us. And I love Jesus' response. He said, if you can, if you can, Jesus says everything is possible to the one who believes. What's Jesus saying to this guy? He says, if I can, of course I can. Of course I can. That's the implied statement. Of course I can. And I tell you what, Jesus' words to this distraught father, are his words to you and to me on our darkest days. It's not if I can, of course I can. Everything is possible to the one who trusts me, is what Jesus says. Remember I've told you before, we've looked at words in scripture like faith, believe, and belief. And if we want to interpret those terms in a cultural context that's most accurate for where we are today, what's being communicated in the original language 
is not talking about some intellectual ascent. It's a relational term. It's speaking about trust. I think the, the English word that, that most captures the understanding of the word faith or believe or belief in Scripture, usually it's a variation of the Greek word pistis. I think the best term is trust. What Jesus is saying is trust me. Everything is possible to the one who trusts me. He's saying to the dead, of course I can. Trust me. And I love the father's response to him. It's just wonderful. Verse 24, immediately the boy's father explained, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. <laughs> have you been there? I have. I mean, I've, I've been where this dad is. The circumstances are overwhelming, and I need God to step in and do a God-sized thing. Like right now, yesterday. I'm beaten, I'm battered, I'm bruised, I'm battle-weary. My trust levels are shaken at best. Ever been there? And my prayer is often the same as this dad. Oh, God, I do trust you. <laughs> Help me overcome my trust issues. <laughs> Help me overcome my lack of trust in you. You know, this whole journey, this whole spiritual journey that we're on, it's all about relationship. The whole purpose for creation was God created all everything that is so that there would be a place where you and I could have a relationship with him. That was the whole purpose of creation. I love the extravagance of God to create the whole universe so you and I could have a relationship with him. Astonishing. Speaks so much of his heart. Angie was talking about in worship today, right? This overabundance, this overwhelming of what God has for us. Creation itself is a wonderful picture of the heart and the giving nature of our God. So the whole purpose of creation is so that we could have relationship with him. He created the garden. He put us in the garden so that he could spend time with us. So we could travel together. We could enjoy one another. The whole purpose of the incarnation, the reason why Jesus came, why we celebrate Christmas, was so that there could be restoration for the relationship that was broken in the garden. It came to restore that relationship. And our life journey, the journey you're on, the journey I'm on, the one that's, that's um, uniquely, individually marked out for each of us, is so that trust can be cultivated. We go through the highs and the lows. We celebrate. We face challenges. All of it is to this end, that trust between us and our God will be cultivated. Because the ultimate goal, the ultimate purpose of life is this. It's intimacy with God. And most of you have been in relationships to know this. Without trust, there isn't any real relationship. In the absence of trust is the absence of relationship. You've, if you want to have intimacy, then not only do you need trust, you need high levels of trust. And so that's what this journey is all about. It's why you go through the good and the bad so that you can learn how to trust God. Okay, back to our text. Mark 9, verses 25 to 27. When Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. All right, so Jesus showed up, right? And um, there's already been a commotion, and he knows that this situation could easily get even more out of hand. So he's getting rid of this, this demonic spirit right now. 
When Jesus saw the crowd uh, was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, <coughs> excuse me. He said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. You know, I've, I've prayed for people that demons would leave. I've prayed exactly that prayer. I've, I've just lifted that right out of scripture. I use that exact, exact same verbiage when I've prayed over people to have demons come out of them. He said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. So Jesus rebukes this evil spirit. He names it, commands it to come out, and tells it not to come back again. You know? And it came out. It came out dramatically. It came out demonstratively. But it came out. It shrieked. It convulsed the poor boy's body. And left him. When it finally left, the boy looked like he was dead. So much so that people thought he was. What does Jesus do? He helps him to his feet. <laughs> he helps him to his feet. You ever felt like you're dying? You ever felt dead? You ever gone through such a fierce spiritual battle that by the end of it you got nothing left? This is what Jesus does. This is the Jesus thing. This is the God we serve, the one who loves. He helps us up. <laughs> he doesn't yell at the boy, get up on your feet, I just cast a demon out of you. No, he helps him up. I love his heart towards this kid. Helps him to his feet and it was done. <sighs> Jesus said to the father, can I? If I can, of course I can. What a great day for that boy and his dad. What a great day. And yet again, we see another account of Scripture where the, the teachers of the law, Pharisees, they're on the wrong side of the issue. Yet again, one more time, they're on the wrong side. So afterwards, Jesus has a private conversation with his disciples. They debrief afterwards, after the encounter. I've done this too. We've had ministry times or um, you, know, some, you know, really powerful times or a church I've pastored where we've, we've ministered to people, it's good to sit down afterwards. Hey, what happened? What do you think about that? When this happened or when that happened. And so that's what Jesus does with his disciples. They're going to have a conversation afterwards to kind of debrief. And so after, verses 28 and 29, after Jesus had gone indoors, right, in private setting, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus' response is this. This kind come out only by prayer. In Mark it says, Mark 9.29, this kind can come out only by prayer. The New International Version takes this verse and says it this way. This kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. Now there have been times when I realized I was not ready for a spiritual battle. A big part of my job over the years as a pastor is I sit down and I, and I meet with people. And I listen to them. And I pray for them. And sometimes in the midst of doing that, it becomes evident one way or another that, oh, there's, there's demonic stuff to be dealt with. And more often than not, when, when that's the case, it's pretty clear to me that, that the demon that's afflicting this person, it's been there for a while. And if I wait another day or two, or even a week, 
to deal with it, it's probably not going to do that person much more harm. And so I'm willing to wait so that I can fight the battle on my terms and not on the demon's terms. Sometimes a demon will manifest so that we'll get into a tussle and I'm, I'm not ready. Like the disciples weren't ready. They obviously were not prepared enough. Jesus says, this is the reason why I didn't come out. You need to pray and fast. And so sometimes I've discovered, you know what? I'm, I'm not battle ready tonight. But if I know I'm going to meet in a couple of days with this person again to deal with this, I can have intercessors praying for me. I can be praying. I can be fasting. I'll be more ready. I would prefer to fight the fight on my terms than their terms so that I can be more effective. And I think that's the message that Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples here. It's been, it's been much more effective for me that way. In Matthew's account, he adds a little bit more to the instruction that he gave to his disciples when they're meeting privately and they're debriefing this event with the demonized boy. Matthew 17, 20 says, Because you have so little faith, truly I tell you, they asked him, why couldn't we do it? He says, because you have so little faith. He goes on to say, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it'll move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So again here, Jesus is, is addressing the issue of trust. Even he, and this is what he's saying. Even a little bit of trust. A little bit of trust in who I am and what my thoughts are for you and my heart for you and how I'm with you. Even a little bit of trust in our relationship go a long way. A mustard seed amount of trust. And God's heart toward you can move mountains. Isn't that really the issue? When we're going through hard times, when we're facing our mountains, when we feel like we're in a fierce spiritual battle, when our inner dialogue is just awful and we're beating ourselves up around the clock, it's because we are believing something other than God's opinion of us. We're believing something other than good things about God himself. We don't trust him. I have found that even in my worst circumstances, if I can trust him a little, even a little bit, you know what that produces in me? Hope. Man, it produces hope. And probably the only thing more powerful than hopelessness is hope itself. Even a little bit of hope can displace hopelessness. I've heard it said that a, a person can live three days without water, Three minutes without air, three seconds without hope. Never underestimate the power of even the smallest amount of hope. When we can trust him, suddenly our mountains become movable. It's all about trust. It's all about trust because it's all about relationship. Trust, trust is the answer for the impossible. Trust is the antidote for our mountains. Oh God, help us trust you more. So what applications, can, what can we learn from this? What can we glean from this encounter here? Well, I think one of the things that we can, we can come away with, take away, is that it's more important to love than it is to be right. Now, you've probably heard me say that a thousand times. <laughs> From here on Sunday, it is so much more important to love than it is to be right. And that's what the teachers of the law missed. 
They wanted to be right. They wanted to win the argument. They wanted to, to have the theological high ground. But they didn't give a rip about loving this poor boy or his father. If they had any concern for him, there wouldn't have been a commotion in the street with Jesus' disciples over this poor boy. Right? They wanted it to be in the street. They wanted it to be public. Because they wanted to get the people on their side. They wanted to be right. They wanted to be perceived as right, and they wanted Jesus and his disciples to be, to be perceived as wrong. I've learned on my journey, it is more important to love than it is to be right. That's been true in my marriage. That's been true with my kids. It's been true with my friends. It's been true in how I pastor the people God's entrusted to my care. It is more important to love than it is to be right, because... Being right comes at the expense of love. The price is just way too high. It's way too high. The religious leaders were more concerned with winning the argument than loving the poor demonized boy. They, they were willing to exploit him to further their own personal agendas. And religious spirits do the very same thing to this day. Oh, I remember driving down, a, driving down the Kennewick Avenue in, in uh, Kennewick, Washington, right by a Starbucks, a giant big old Starbucks around a major intersection. And he's the weirdest looking guy you ever see, man. He's, he's got, he's a big guy. He's about twice his, I'm a big guy. He's about twice my size. And he's got these uh, gym shorts, like, pulled up really, really high and got this tie-dyed shirt and suspenders on, wild hair, and a big sign that says, God hates fags. That's what it said. That's what the sign said. I think, dude, how is, how is this right? How is this even working? How does any of this work? This doesn't work. If, I'm, I have no doubt he believed he was right. But there wasn't an ounce of love in anything he did. None whatsoever. It's so much more important to love than it is to be right. Anyway, that's the first thing I think we can come away, away with. The second is this. Some spiritual battles require prayer and fasting. That was the issue the disciples battled here. Sometimes it's good to, to fight the battle another day. To fight it on your terms and not on the de demon's terms. Tell you what, there are sometimes I've been in an encounter, I'm trying to cast out a demon, it won't go. And there could be a variety of reasons for that, and we could teach about that in another time. But I'll tell you what, when I'm really stuck, this is what I do. I said, Jesus, would you come and just deal with this thing right now? And he does. He shows up. And it's always effective. I, I don't know, I'm missing it. I'm, I'm un ineffective like the disciples for whatever reason. Jesus shows up, and just like he did in, in Mark 9, he shows up when I'm praying for that person. And that's when the demons have to go. And the other thing I think we could use as a takeaway is um, the point I made about trust. It's all about trust. Your whole journey is about trust so that intimate relationship between you and God can be cultivated. Nothing is impossible for God. Absolutely nothing. He is worthy of our trust. He's worthy of your trust. No matter your circumstances, he is worthy of your trust. And trusting him, 
even a little bit, is the key to overcoming the impossible. So why don't we invite uh, the worship team back up to lead us in a final song. And I'll close us in prayer today. Oh, God. Yeah, I think with the acoustic guitar and Angie's booming voice, we'll be just fine for a final song. So let's pray. Oh, God, we thank you for how good you are, that you call us friends and that you love us. We thank you, Lord. Lord, I thank you that you don't speak harshly to us, that you treat us with tenderness and with kindness. Lord, I pray for my friends and for myself on our journeys, Lord. Help us to trust you. We trust you, Lord. Help us with our trust issues. We believe. Help me in my unbelief. Have your way in us, oh God. And Lord, we pray that you would bless our church, that we would be a people comfortable in your presence. And Lord, I pray that you would bless our community, that the life that's here, because you're here, would emanate from us, and impact all those around us. Lord, we thank you for all the good stuff that happened this past weekend. And ask that you breathe on it. And I pray for all my friends who work so hard that they get to rest the rest of their Sunday and sleep really good tonight. <laughs> and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen? I love you guys. Have an awesome day.